It is good to be with you this morning. For those of you that we get to actually see, we haven't seen you in a while, but those of you who are with us online, different parts even of the world, we're just grateful to be able to be together today. I like that song, our God that is for us. You believe that? You believe that? A God that is for us. Well, here's what I want us to wrestle with today. When we're really honest, there are some times that we struggle, at least a little bit, to believe that. Maybe it was someone that you really, really, really love that you lost. And I'm saying, come on, let's be honest, in the middle of that loss, there were some moments when you went, this doesn't feel like God is for me. Maybe it was a loss of income And maybe that extended for a period of time until it led to things like maybe the loss of a home. And as that drug on, there are just some moments you're like, this does not feel like God is for me. Maybe the diagnosis of a a sickness that that, that requires treatment, that leads to, to, to pain, it leads to a loss of strength. I'm just saying there are some moments, if we're honest, when we we are quick to say, God, what's going on here? And I know the preacher answers. I'm well aware. But sometimes we just want to say, God, what is this and why didn't you? Why didn't you? Maybe you look at the world and you see the suffering. You see the injustice. You see wars. I I think about the times that that some of us, we we get the chance to go and, and visit some of our shelters in different parts of the world. And we look into the eyes of orphans who are where they are because of a civil war that is going on in their country. And it just goes on and on and on and on. And sometimes you just want to go, God, why don't you fix that? So I know the preacher answer. Again, I I know we get to be the hands and the feet of God as as we love on those kids. And all that's true, I know. I'm just saying, though, aren't there moments when you just want to go, but God, I'm saying, why don't you just fix it? Because you got angel armies that at the snap of your fingers, you could put the rest of armies to silence. Well, I'm glad that the Bible reflects the fact that I'm not the only one that struggles with that. And if you do, you're not the only one that struggles with it. For example, we have learned already this year, King David struggled with it at times. You probably remember Psalm 88. I'm sure you do because I preached it to you and you you remember everything, right, that that, that we teach to you. And remember what he said in Psalm 88? God, where are you? The darkness is my best friend. In other words, God, right now, the darkness is a better friend than you are. Or how about John the Baptist? I mean, he's kind of a big guy in Scripture. He baptizes Jesus. Jesus said, you're looking at the greatest preacher you've ever seen. But after John baptized Jesus, there's this moment that Jesus sends a message, or John sends a message to Jesus and says, are you really the Messiah? Because this ain't looking like what I thought it would look like. Or how about even just Jesus' disciples? 
after the resurrection, even 50 days before Jesus ascends back to heaven, we know that there's some 40 plus days there that, that Jesus is spending time with them. But the day comes on the mountain, Jesus is going to ascend into heaven. But did you know that it says in Matthew chapter 28, some worship, but some doubted. It's like, are you kidding me? He's floating in the air. And they're like, yeah, I know, but... Like, why in the world could you not believe? And I think it is the common thread that you see throughout all these stories. It's because of what Jesus had not done that they thought he should have done. So today, we're talking about this guy because we've been reading his story for a couple of months or actually a couple of weeks. Maybe it feels like a couple of months when you're reading Job's story. There's a lot of stuff we don't understand about Job. We don't know where Uz is, the place that he lived. We cannot locate that really on the map. We're not sure of the time period that Job takes place. Uh, we're not even really sure what nationality Job is because Job is not an Israelite name. But what we know is that God says this guy was good. He was the most righteous person on the planet at the time. His is a story, though, about questions of suffering and doubting. So early in the book, the scene shifts to heaven. And in heaven, God's having a staff meeting. And the Satan, the Bible says, he is the accuser. He, he raises a challenge in the meeting, and this is what he says. God the only reason those people like you is because you bless them. God, the only reason they stay with you is because you, you, you give them things like Job. God, I know that he's a good man, but if you take away from Job all the stuff that you've given him, he's not going to love you. He will curse you. And so the Bible says that God allows everything to be taken from Job. All his wealth, which... Uh, scholars tell us if you compare what Job had to our day, he would be at least a millionaire. He, he was wealthy. It, it took away his, his children, took away his health. Even though God said you can't kill him, it, he, he allowed Job's health to be taken away. Funny thing, the only thing that wasn't taken away was Job's wife. I don't know what that means. I have this thing in my head. It's not in the Bible. It's in my head where there's this demon saying to Satan, hey, you, you haven't taken Job's wife yet. And Satan's like, oh, no, no, we're going to leave her right where she is. And if you read the story, you'll understand why. Why would God allow all that? Well, it's safe to say that the answer is not immediately answered. The question's not immediately answered. Job's friends step onto the scene they appear to be pretty good friends in the sense that they will sit with Job in his pain. Not all friends will do that for you. But Job's friends believe God is just and he does everything for a reason. So how are they going to explain Job's suffering? It basically goes like this, Job, what'd you do? 
Because if God is just and, he, and everything happens for a reason, Job, you must have done something wrong. And Job's like, I didn't do anything wrong. He's like, I, I'm not perfect. I mean, but there's nothing that God has confronted me on. There's not anything. Can I tell you for 37 chapters, his friends say, what'd you do? Come on, man, what'd you do? What, what have you done wrong? What has caused this? In chapter 38, Job says, we're done. Because you're not helping me, you're wrong. And they leave him one by one until he is alone. But the mystery of his suffering remains. And then God shows up. And when God shows up, we feel better about the thing. It's like, now we're going to get some answers. Now we got somebody that knows what's going on. But you know what God does? He starts asking Job questions. And here's the questions. Job, where were you when I formed the earth? Job, where were you when I formed the constellations? Job, do you know where the next hurricane's coming from? And oh, how about this question? Why are ostriches ugly? It's in there. If you read it, you would know it's in there. He says, Job, you want to run this thing for a day? All these requests that people have, and this person wants this thing, and this person wants this thing, and it looks like you want to run all that for a day? And God asked him all these questions because the point was to give a perspective. Job, if you can't handle even these questions about natural things, then what do you think you know about eternal things? Job, your view of me, God, is too small. In order to understand infinite justice, then you need to have infinite perspective. That's the story of the book. And in the end, God gives Job his health back. He, he gives him a family again. He gives him wealth, and in fact, it, it, twice as much as he had before. But still, no direct answer as to why the suffering. And yet I would say, I think the answers are there. But the answers are found in the questions that God asked him. So let me read a little bit of this text to you and then just share a few things that Job learns out of this experience. Job chapter 42 I just want to give you the first six verses. Here's, here's how it reads. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked. So Job's saying, God, you asked me, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely, Job says, I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, Listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Job says, my eyes have heard of you, but now my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Real quick, here's a few things that I think the questions of God quickly reveal to, 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 to Job. And here's the first. He learned about God's power being sovereign. God's power is sovereign. 
In the first part of verse 2, it says, I know that you can do all things. And that's what we see throughout Job's story. Even Satan is not allowed to act without God's permission. It is clear in this story of chaos who's in control. But what also comes to light in the book of Job regarding the power of God that is sovereign is that did you know God does things for purposes that have nothing to do with you? There's one verse in chapter 38 of Job that says God waters land in which no one lives. God waters land where nothing lives. Why would you do that? Why would you water land where nothing lives? You know why we ask that question? Because we're like, where's the benefit for us? And it's part of what God unpacks in this book where he's like, hey, let's turn the light on here. Did you know that God has purposes that he works toward that actually are not always centered in you? They are centered in him. It's about his greatness. So how about this? You ready? How about if we would be able to say the ultimate purpose of Job's suffering was to bring glory to God? And that was more important than the things in Job's life working out the way Job thought they should work out or even the way that we think that should work out. And when I say that, I know that there are people who are like, ow, I don't even know if I like that. You know why we don't like that? Because we got a little view of God. The reason we don't like that is because our view of who he is is so small. But I would challenge you to realize it is the key to life. It is realizing that God's purposes are ultimately about his greatness. And once you come to realize that this whole thing is about something bigger than just you and me, that's where the greatest joy can be found. Hmm. That's a pretty big lesson to learn. Well, not only did Job learn that God's power is sovereign, but God also taught him that his purpose is guaranteed. In the last part of that same verse, it, Job says, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God, your purposes, they are guaranteed. I'm realizing that sometimes your purposes are about you, they're not about me, but, but what I know is those purposes, they happen. Throughout Scripture, every attempt of the enemy to attack God's people only tends to further the purpose that God wants to accomplish through his people. For example, Job comes, or Satan comes after Job. What does God end up doing with that? Well, for one, he wrote a book. And here we are today, all these years later, still being blessed, still being encouraged, still being strengthened, still learning something about how big our God really is. I'm saying God took a moment where the enemy attacked Job and turned it into something that God is still blessing the world with. In the book of Acts, every time the enemy tries to shut down the church, what do we see happen? The church actually grows. 
And the ultimate picture of that, uh, it, it's the cross. I mean, if ever there was a moment where it looked like the enemy had won, but that was where God was doing the most in securing our salvation once and for all. God took the worst day ever and turned it into the best day ever. Job came to learn that God's purposes, they're guaranteed. But I want to give you one more that we're going to hang out on for a little bit because I think this third one really affects the other two. He learned that God's perspective is infinite. God's perspective is infinite. In verse 3, he said, God, you asked me, like, who, who, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Like, who, who, Job, who, who are you going, God, what are you doing, and why would you do it that way, and what, what is this? He says, I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. See, by the end of the book, Job understood the question God was asking him. If you don't understand the mysteries of storms or stars, how are you going to understand the mysteries of things eternal? Epicurus is often given credit for uh, a line of thinking, an argument that's called the problem of evil. Now, I think Job should be given credit for that because Job came along a lot, long, lot earlier than Epicurus. But here's how, here's how the argument goes. If God is all-loving and all-powerful, then God would want to and could stop suffering. So the fact that suffering still exists means God must not exist. That's the argument. That's Epicurus' argument, the problem of evil. I'm saying Epicurus has forgotten something very, very significant. It's the same thing that Job didn't understand in the middle of all that was going on. And I'm saying it's the same thing that I tend to forget in the middle of what's all going on. It's not just a question of is God all-loving and is God all-powerful. It's also a question of is God all-wise. And if so, then if God's wisdom is above my wisdom to the same extent that his power is above my power, then doesn't it make sense that there are going to be moments when God is doing some things that I may not understand? I, I'm going to describe it this way. 3,000 billion trillion stars. Now, for the mathematicians in the room, it's going to be okay because I realize this is not how you often say this number, all right? 3,000 billion trillion stars, but there's a reason we're doing it this way. If I had said three septillion, most of you would look back at me going, huh? Because a septillion has 24 zeros, okay? That's the number we're talking about, 24 
four zeros. So that's what this represents. 3,000 has three, billions got nine, trillions got 12. I'm just trying to break it down for you to where when you put all that together, you got a three and 24 zeros. This is the number of stars that approximately scientists today believe exist. Now, it's funny how this number is always tends to be growing. This is where we are for now. That's quite a number. Just to put it into perspective, do you know a million seconds ago what you were doing? A million seconds was 11 days ago. How about a billion seconds ago? You know how long that was? 31 years, eight months ago. And a trillion seconds ago? A trillion seconds ago would be the year 29,672 BC. 3,000 billion trillion stars. And if each one of those stars produces enough energy to match the power of a trillion atomic bombs every second, that's what scientists tell us. And we know that there are stars that exist that are five million times brighter than our sun. And all of that started with let there be light. That's power. You struggle to flip your mattress over once a year. Right, right. No, we, no, we do it. It's time. I think it's time. Oh, little help, little help. So here's the question. If God's wisdom is that much higher than my wisdom, just like his power is that much higher than my power, then might there be some moments that God is acting in ways that I do not fully understand, including suffering. I want to make sure you know it's okay to ask those questions. God, what's going on? God, why? It's okay to ask those questions. The Bible welcomes those questions. But when you ask those questions, here's what I encourage you. Make sure you are dragging along some humility. Bring your humility with you. Because we are wrestling with some things in comparison to a God that that we often, see, we, we see him too small because a lot of times we just want God to be just a little bit bigger than we are. That's kind of what most people want. I want a God who's a little bit bigger than I am. That That way when I get to those moments that are a little bit bigger than me, I can call on him and he can get me through that. That's convenient, but it will not be big enough to sustain your faith. Solomon called this big view of God the fear of God. This gigantic view, how big God is, he called it the fear of God. And you know what he said about the fear of God? It is the beginning of what? Wisdom. Wisdom. Throughout your life, it is likely that there have been some moments that 
later you could look back and go, you know what, God was doing something there, I just couldn't see it. Well, I'm saying if you had infinite perspective, how much more is there? How much more is there? In the Old Testament, I think one of the interesting ways to look at it is there are three pictures in what I call the Joes, who, who, where it represents purpose and suffering, all right? The three Joes are Jonah, Joseph, and Job, all right? Now, why does Jonah experience suffering? Because he's what? He's running from God. And God will use suffering to bring you back. He will. How about Joseph? Joseph experiences suffering, but come on, what a beautiful end of the story, right? Remember where his family shows up? His family, a nation, a whole bunch of people are saved because of the suffering that Joseph goes through. Sometimes that's a purpose. But when it comes to Job, what we see in Job's story is that in the middle of this suffering, God taught him to understand more of who God is to love God more, to know God more. And I think that's what you hear in, in, in verse 5. When you get to, verse, to, to chapter 42, it's the very end of the book. And if we go back to verse 5, here's what, here's what Job says. My, my ears have heard of you. God, my, my, I've heard this. But now my eyes have seen you. I think that's the same kind of language that the psalmist is trying to describe in Psalm 34. In, in, in Psalm 34, it, it reads this way, taste and see that the Lord is good. I think he's saying the same thing, right? There is some knowledge that you only get by tasting. I, I could stand up here for the next five hours and teach you about the sweetness of honey but one drop of honey on your tongue for five seconds and you'd be like, "Mm -mm. now I know. Now I know. Until God gives you a taste of his goodness, all the theology in the world will not change your heart. But in Job's suffering, God speaks And Job hears, he tastes, and suddenly he is a broken and a changed man. In verse 6, it reads this way, Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. It's the, it's the same kind of language when we studied Isaiah. Remember Isaiah when, when he says, woe is me, right? I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips. And when did he say that? He says, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. When you taste and you see, you're changed. God never gave an explanation for the suffering in Job. But he did give Job a revelation of who God is. Is. And when Job saw it, he's suddenly so busy repenting that there are no more questions of why. And I think it's the truth. When you begin to see the beauty of who Jesus is, you don't worry quite so much about the why. And you start resting more in the who. Nothing wrong with asking God those questions. I don't know how to say that enough. You can ask him the questions, but just expect the answers 
to be engulfed in who he is. And once you see who he is, once you taste who he is, you will not be the same. Interesting way that the story ends in Job. God's God's got something against those three friends of Job. Because God says they did not accurately represent God to Job. And it's funny, it's, it's funny how the book ends. Hardly ever do we study it. But God basically says, I, I got a problem with you, but Job is gonna pray for you and I'm gonna hear Job's prayer and you'll be forgiven. That's an interesting, that's, that's interesting. Job's gonna pray for you and I'm gonna hear his prayer. And so here's the verse in, in verse 10. Look at what it says. After Job had prayed for his friends, The Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. Now, every time I tend to hear somebody teach on that verse, the whole point is, yes, Job is blessed again, right? He had wealth in the beginning, had family in the beginning, had had all the health in the beginning, and then he went through loss, and yes, God has now blessed him again. I would submit to you that is not the greatest part of the verse, The greatest blessing in Job's story is not what he had at the beginning, and it's not that he had twice as much at the end. The greatest part of Job's story is what happened right in the middle, because this verse says he's still without. He still doesn't have family. He still doesn't have wealth. He is still struggling with his health, and in that struggle is when he prays for his friends. Why would he pray for his friends? Why would he pray for his friends who spent 37 chapters pushing it in his face that he must have done something wrong when all he's trying to do is figure out how to get some relief, how, how, to, how to navigate this whole thing? Why would Job pray for them? It's because suddenly Job's perspective is bigger. And how can he not extend to his friends something that God has extended to him. That is the most beautiful miracle in this whole story. Because Job is given a glimpse of a redeemer. A glimpse of a redeemer. In chapter 19 of this same book, verse 29 through 25, it reads, I know that my redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand on the earth. I'm not sure like everything Job saw when when, when God gave him that. But I know what we see. Like when, when when Job first uttered these words, I know that my redeemer lives and that in the end he'll stand on the earth. I don't know what all he saw, but I know what we see. Because come on, we stand on the other side of actually seeing our Redeemer set foot on the earth and we know why he was here. He was here in order to take our punishment so that we might never have to be separated from him again. I know he stands by my side because my Redeemer stood in my place. So even when I'm suffering and I don't understand why, I don't understand what this is about, what I don't have to question is, is he with me? And what I don't have to question is, is he working for good? 
I love this quote by A.W. Tozer. This is what he says. With the goodness of God to desire our highest welfare and the wisdom of God to plan it and the power of God to achieve it, what do we lack? I'm gonna read it again. With the goodness of God to desire our highest welfare and the wisdom of God to plan that and the power of God, right, 3,000 billion trillion stars power to achieve it, then what do we lack? And so I don't wanna just read this quote to you. I wanna ask you, like, right now, what is it that if you said, what is it that you lack? Like, what is that thing right now that you lack that you're going, God, I don't know why you haven't given this. God, I don't know why you haven't fixed this. God, what is it that you lack? And my question is, in light of what we have learned from Job today, and in light of what we have learned about the bigness of our God, how might that change your perspective about what you think you lack and what God is doing in that? Because come on, I may not know exactly what God is doing in my pain, but the cross shows me exactly what my suffering cannot ever mean. Because of the cross, my suffering cannot ever mean that God doesn't love me, and it cannot ever mean that God has lost control. Because if there was ever a moment when it looked like God was not in control, it's the cross. But what we know that at the cross, that is where God did his greatest work of salvation for us. If there was ever a moment that might look like God wouldn't love us, it would be the cross. We, We are nailing him there. And yet, if he would not turn his back on me when I was his enemy, then he will not turn his back on me now that I am his child. Your Redeemer has stood in your place. And please hear, he never ever promised that every chapter of your life you would think is good. He didn't. He never promised that every chapter of your life you're gonna go, oh, this is obviously good, I feel good about this, right? No, but what he did promise is that in the last chapter, it will be good. And you will see like never before. So today, whether you're sitting at home or maybe you're traveling down the road, those of us who are in this room together, we can be all over the place physically. But there might be a lot more of us than we realize who are in a chapter with Job. Here's the message. Your Redeemer lives. He lives. And whatever you're going through at this moment, what it cannot mean is that God has stopped loving you. And what it cannot mean is that he has lost control because the cross cross proves that once and for all. Your Redeemer lives. So today, I encourage you to see him. See him. He is before you, and he is behind you. He is beside you, and he is all around you. He is within you, because he is with you. 
in the morning and in the evening, in your coming and in your going, and in our weeping and in our rejoicing, our God is for you. That's what we celebrate today. Our God, he is for you.